So I'm going to start with a, a double invitation to you. And many of you have heard this in different wisdom traditions, but really to take what you need and leave the rest behind. To really see what's true for you. We talk about truths all the time. And uh, I'm going to add to Jaya's beautiful talk on the Four Noble Truths and give you a fifth one by Gloria Steinem. And she says, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. (laughs) I think that rings like true for me sometimes. Because often the truth is complicated. It's not simple. And so that's the theme of of the talk is the complexity. You've, you've practiced really intensely for the entire week. And, you know, we try to make the teachings interesting, you know, we, through our life stories, but we basically are saying the same thing over and over again. <laughs> and where it gets complicated is when it lands in your life. And each of your lives, because they're different. So it's really this, this, this paradox, you know, simplicity versus complexity, and that's what I want to explore in this talk, is the practice of paradox and the paradoxes in practice. There's a, I was um, just on the East Coast with our community on the East Coast, and um, I went through New York and there's this cartoon that of this enormous religious or sacred space that reminds me of St. John of the Divine if on the Upper West Side, if you've been there. But, you know, it also, could, it also can look like the National Cathedral, or, but it's just, you know, this, we don't have them on the West Coast. We're, I don't know, we, we're not that Baroque. And... Um, <laughs> But this, but this, but this couple is walking out of the ch- of this, you know, ornate cathedral, and one is turning to the other and says, um, "How can I love my enemies when I don't like my friends?" <laughs> and that's really like a spiritual paradox, like, like, uh, what is that? that experience of love. And we have many of these paradoxes in our life, just some common ones that you might feel into. That the more you try to impress people, the less impressed they are. Or the more available something is, the less we want it. What's that about? that our greed is conditioned on scarcity. Or I felt this many times in earlier in my life before I met Stephen, but you know, the best way to meet a romantic partner is not to need any romantic partners because when you're needing that is when you're pushing people away. But it gets more complicated it gets deeper. 
So in my childhood, you know, these, these opposites and these, these oppositions came really quickly because I come from uh, a Chinese immigrant family. And, um, and so the message, even though they never said it, the message was, be Chinese, but succeed in America. How do you do that? <laughs> I mean, how do you be Chinese and be American in, in a way that, that they were meaning, meaning to assimilate, meaning to succeed in the cultural norms that were so different? And it became even more problematic because um, I waited until uh, I was almost 30 to come out to my parents as a gay man. And one of the reasons is because of how my mom responded. <laughs> she said, when I said, you know, um, described who I was and, and who I've been, and she looked at me and she said, really? There are no gay people in China. <laughs> There's no such thing. <laughs> How do you live with that? <laughs> a, a, a deeper with my parents is, is that, you know, in, in the Western culture, there's a lot of affectional affect. You tell people that, that you love them, you hug them, you, you show affection. And in, in my parents' culture of origin, that's very different. So I never heard the words, I love you, or it was all behavioral. But I didn't actually get that until my early 40s. And so I lived with that, that, that tension, holding that tension, fi trying to figure out what this was for a long time. And even in our everyday life, you know, in our, in our jobs, many of our, many of our workplaces and careers are, are difficult places that, you know, we, we get burdened by so many activities. It's really hard sometimes to um, stay afloat in our, in our aspirations and our motivations and our creativity when we're being dragged down by the routine or the dysfunction in, in the in the workplace or the burden. And in life, there are aspirations that, that, that call to us, and yet we may never achieve them. And yet they keep calling over and over again. And it reminds me of, of the Buddha's, the cosmology of the Buddha's life in that he didn't just become the Buddha in one life. He lived through thousands of lifetimes, always aspiring to that place of awakening, over and over again, holding that tension of maybe not achieving it in that particular life. Really, really living into 
the, the teaching that the path is the fruit and the fruit is the path. That awakening is the Eightfold Path. It doesn't just lead to it. So some of the opposing, you know, energies in our practice, uh, I'm going to try to, to, to sort of, ad- um, to address. Um, uh, some of them have been mentioned in the past, in the past week. This this tension between the relative truth and reality of convention, and sort of the ultimate or the absolute truth and reality. The seemingly um, opposite of practicing awareness and mindfulness internally versus externally. That's part of the four foundations that Nikki uh, was so beautifully describing a couple of nights ago. And the whole issue of, am I just supposed to be here or am I supposed to do? The being versus the doing, the stillness versus the activism. And I also hope to touch on this aspect of personal versus collective. How do we hold all of that? How do we hold the tension of these things that seem like they're pulling us in different directions without giving up or giving in or being pulled apart? How can we be wise when we may not know everything about anything in particular? And how... um, And if we don't understand something intellectually or through our, through our minds, is there a way to understand intuitively in a more felt sense or conceptual level? So the etymology of paradox, it's Greek, as many of you know, and the, the first, the first two syllables, para, means beyond, that which is, that goes beyond. And doxa means established opinions or or thoughts or ideas. So the word means what is beyond the established ideas, which is very interesting because one of the strongest attachments in, in the Buddhist teachings, there are, you know, when they break down um, the meaning of attachments, is the attachment to views. What we believe, the thoughts that come into this sense organ of the mind. And so this is where this practice of mindfulness and experiencing directly your reality beyond what we think it is is so important. As we said, it's to be intimate with what the, what the, what the arising is. You know, I, several days in a row, I mean these grasses that are growing in the, on this plot of land in front of the meditation hall, the, the color of yellow 
that is, it, it's, like, it's like each strand of grass has a light bulb in it. You know, it's so luminescent. It's not something that you can actually describe. There was a practitioner who was describing um, the sunset and just seeing the sunset, how, how incredibly visually, you know, saturated with color and, 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 and how it was changing and that, that he had heard the teaching and read the teaching around how things change moment to moment and yet he only got it in that moment. opening to what is beyond, you know, the, our words and ideas to that direct experience. And, and even with the teachings around, for example, compassion, Thich Nhat Hanh writes, since I was a young man, I've tried to understand the nature of compassion, but what little compassion I've learned has not come from intellectual investigation but from my actual experience of suffering. The direct experience. Often we um, talked about this, this complex life as the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, which sort of parallel the worldly winds, these polarities of life, of of praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain, gain and loss. All of our lives have these worldly winds. No life has only the pleasant or the gain part or the praise part. We all have that, you know, that polarity that, that, that arises and sometimes they're really far apart and sometimes they're really close. Somebody at IMS ju- just said, you know, during, um, uh, during a, a meeting that it seemed as if their joy and sorrow was in the same moment. And I relate to that, you know, I. Uh, when my father passed in 2010, we had the privilege of being with him in his last moment. And um, it was a decline of about two weeks. And, and it was such a gift, number one, that he passed peacefully, because not everybody does in this life, but that he didn't struggle against it. So in a way, he was giving us a gift. In a way, he was offering his last teaching of how to leave this particular life plane. And so there was this, this curiosity and wonder and joy at the same time, this, this agonizing loss and, and pain happening simultaneously. We have a word for that. 
It's called bittersweet. Life, full of its contradictions and paradoxes, is bittersweet. And we have, and so one of the practices of paradox, to be able to hold that, is the practice of gratitude. To acknowledging the great fullness of our life. The full range. That we wouldn't be here, that you wouldn't be here today in this moment without having experienced every single thing in your life. This rang home like a, like the sound of a bell. Um, uh, I arrived in San Francisco in the early, uh, in the late 80s, and in the, um, actually it was, it was right before Pride, so it was like 25 years ago. Um, I was assaulted in San Francisco, and so I went for treatment at the uh, trauma center at San Francisco General Hospital, which had a vi- has a very expert um, trauma center. And um, the experience shifted my priorities. And so I, you know, um, I eventually went back to become a social worker and um, uh, worked in mental health and um, uh, started working through the county mental health system. And uh, um, as I was shifting and transferring jobs, I ended up at San Francisco General um, a few few years later after my my, um, licensure. And um, I was also the director of multicultural services there in the outpatient clinic. And so I was going through the files trying to get oriented. And what I began to realize was the clinic that I was now working in through mergers and moves was the clinic that I was treated in. And I had to be grateful for everything I went through to get to that place. Because it can feel like a contradiction that I do not, you know, that is a part of my life that I do not want to have. And yet, life is saying, not exactly. And the larger contradiction is in the definition of compassion itself. As Dara was so beautifully guiding us to that, that, that kindness, loving kindness, turn towards the sorrow and, and the first noble truth of suffering. From that experience emerges compassion, which means that And I think that that both Jaya and Dara has said this before. It means that compassion wouldn't exist without suffering. It's that close. That's the paradox of compassion and suffering.
And so we have, you know, these conventional truths in our everyday world and the absolute truths, the ultimate truth of um, that, uh, um, of, of how life is. So, you know, just to give a sense of, of relative and, and absolute, um, one of the classic uh, uh, examples is that of a chariot. You know, you have chariot, a chariot, but if you take it apart into the wheel and the hub and the, and the, um, the wood and, and the harness, do you have a chariot in its component parts? Because they're really the same thing. The most, the most, uh, maybe a more recent example is the peach pie. <laughs> you know, that peach pie was really good. <laughs> but we don't say those peaches with the flour and the sugar and the eggs and the shortening and the lemon juice and the salt that was baked for however long was really good. So... The peach pie is the relative reality, the the label that we put to the component parts of the absolute experience. Identity, our identity, our cultural identity, our identity in our life is such an interesting place to practice this ultimate and conventional reality one of the core questions in Eastern traditions, wisdom traditions, is who am I? Who are we? And it, it's, not a, it's not a question that gets um, asked or answered only once. Who am I? Who am I really? Who am I after that? You know, if I answer that question, of which sometimes it comes up internally, it sometimes it comes up externally. You know, I identify as gay. I know that I'm a light-skinned Asian with, with that privilege. I'm cisgendered male. I have middle-class privilege. I'm educated. Um, I've been a social worker. I'm a Dharma teacher. I'm a grandfather. I'm a husband. Two weeks ago, somebody used the word elder, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not ready. <laughs> and when I really feel into it, does do those labels really describe all of who I am? No. But is it true that I'm just this aggregated experience of skin and bones and consciousness? Well, that doesn't feel right either. <laughs> what is this dance? that we do between being unique and being 
so interconnected. How do we live into that paradox? Suzuki Roshi, who was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, writes, Strictly speaking, there are no separate individual experiences. There are just many names for one existence. Sometimes people put stress on oneness, but this is not our understanding. We do not emphasize any point in particular, even oneness. Oneness is valuable, but variety is wonderful. Ignoring variety, people emphasize the one absolute existence, but this is one-sided understanding. In this understanding, there's a gap between variety and oneness, but oneness and variety are the same thing. So oneness should be appreciated in each existence. Two truths, different and the same. And the Buddha recognized this. So in the Vinaya, which is the monastic code that the uh, monastic Sangha um, learns and, and, and adheres to, is this story. On the occasion was this, there were two monastics. They were of Brahmin stock, so they were of arist aristocratic upbringing. They had fine voices and a fine delivery. They asked the Blessed One, Lord, now the monastics are, are of various names, of various races, variously born, having gone forth from various clans. They spoil the word of the Buddha using their own language. Let us render the words of the Buddha into classical meter. I love it when the Buddha disagrees. <laughs> the Buddha, the Blessed One, rebuked them. Misguided men, how can you say, let us render the words of the Buddha into classical meter? This will not rouse faith in the faithless nor increase faith in the faithful. Rather, it will keep the faithless without faith and harm some of the faithful. Having rebuked them and given a talk on the Dharma, he addressed the monastics thus. Noble ones, the word of the Buddha is not to be rendered into classical meter. Whoever does so commits an offense of wrongdoing. I allow the words of the Buddha to be learnt in one's own language. There's a deeper level to that word language because in the Buddha's time, there was no written language. It was pre-written language. And therefore, when you went from location to location, from a language to a different language, you went into a different culture. The Buddha is allowing the teachings to be taught in our own cultures. This is so important for this retreat, to really embody that, that we have more than the permission to use these teachings that are most relevant to our own culture.
both the universality of the teachings and the specificity of our experience. And the Buddha also recognized in the Upasada Sutta. And furthermore, just as whatever great rivers there are on reaching the ocean, they give up their former names and are simply classed as ocean. In the same way, when members of the four castes, noble warriors, priests, merchants, and workers, go forth from home to the homeless life, meaning ordaining in the monastic sangha, they give up their former names and clans and are classified simply as contemplative sons and daughters of the Buddha. This is the amazing and astounding quality of these teachings that as they see it again and again has the monastics greatly pleased. The specificity and the universal. That there is this relationship and not to forget that connection so that as we as we deepen our practice in a retreat like this, which is such a door for so many of us into the teachings, to remember that any attachment leads to suffering. And the invitation is not to attach to the door. There is so much more beyond the door. Of course, we need the skills to be able to traverse that distance. But the invitation is, is a both and, and not just about one or the other. Sometimes the, the experience of these contradictions or paradoxes can be either right or wrong, we can feel that dichotomy, good or bad, better or worse. And in a way, the paradoxes become boxes, you know, that, that it's either this or that. This, this uh, quote from Niels Bohr, who's a physicist, and sometimes, you know, these very high-level physicists, as they, as they go into the deterministic sciences, they eventually get to these very spiritual places. <laughs> What's that about? <laughs> Why do you have to prove to me something I already know? <laughs> but he writes, the opposite of a correct statement is a false statement. The opposite of a profound truth may be another profound truth. That's the wisdom of contradiction. How paradoxical wisdom can be. And how do we hold that tension? So a, a common, just a, a, as another example, a, a common paradox for social justice activists is do we work for change inside the system or outside the system? Working outside the system, do you really get to the entrenched power structure? Do you really affect 
Do you really have access to, to um, resources? And working in the system, what's the risk of getting co-opted? What's the risk of getting assimilated, of getting colonized? This is a tension we have to hold because I think it's a both and that it happens, it happens together. Even though as an individual, we may not be able to manifest it simultaneously. But in terms of the larger work, it's not an either or. And I can feel this even in the relationship of spirit, the work that is happening at Spirit Rock and the work that's happening at East Bay Meditation Center. East Bay Meditation Center was founded because a lot of our needs weren't being met by the dominant culture. And yet, you wouldn't be here today without Spirit Rock. And East Bay would actually not deepen its collective practice without retreats like this. There is this both and to acknowledge and appreciate in spite of the complexities and the struggles and the frustrations. And then the other question that I, you know, when I'm in that East Bay space is, East Bay has been around for like eight years now. What happens when East Bay becomes mainstream? (laughs) There's a paradox there. You know, like, how do we hold ourselves with integrity? Lest we forget that it is the dynamic tension that actually keeps us alive. When there is no tension, things are dead. And when we can't hold the tension, when we begin to fragment, that's the precursor of war. So it's this ability to hold the tension that arises because life provokes diversity. It provokes divergent expressions biologically, intellectually, spiritually. Life stretches itself into unknown territories. Trying to do some quick edits here in real time. And spiritually, how do we live a meaningful life when we know there's the certainty of death? The death that would obliterate all purpose and meaning. How do we hold on to meaning and purpose and direction. I can see my mother going through this right now. She's 98. She's pretty healthy and and pretty intact. But she knows she's at the end. 
what gives her purpose and meaning when she knows it's going to go? It's, it's, a, it's a very painful contradiction. How do we hold that for ourselves? How do we help each other hold that? So faith is another practice of paradox. Faith invites us into the unknown territory, into the uncertainties, into the I don't know how to do it, into in between the absolute and the relative, the contradictions. The, the aspect of faith in, uh, as one of the spiritual faculties in our practice um, that there are three levels of faith that can support us. There's that, that bright faith, which most of us have experienced, that we, you know, when we come into the teachings, there's something that we fall in love with. You know, there's that brightness that calls to us, that touches our heart. But it doesn't, faith doesn't stop there. Because if it stops there, if it, if it solidifies there, it just becomes dogma. So what happens is, is that we verify it. We, through our di- direct experience, we reinforce it over and over again. And we have more and more confidence until we abide in faith, in that unshakable place that doesn't come from dogma. It's not a fixed view. It's a direct experience of this is what's happened in my life. This is what can hold us in that, in that contradiction and uncertainty. Another practice in paradoxes is in the Satipatthana that, that Nikki shared. This, this, all of the four foundations over and over again are, are, um, are given to us both as internal and external practices. In the Satipatthana it's written, the noble ones abide contemplating internally, they abide contemplating externally. They abide contemplating both internally and externally. So that's, you know, that can feel like two different things, internal and external. You know, being, being aware of one's own internal sensations and emotions, you know it, the, 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 the starting from the breath to the thoughts and the emotions. Or being aware externally of what is coming into our sense doors. But really, it's a both and. It's, it's about how can we create this relational practice with the world. It's not about our individual practice. It's not about our individual sense of freedom or awakening. Compassion is again this internal and external practice that came up in our, one of our groups today. 
you know, the, the conversation of, of how do I take care of myself when setting the boundary may actually hurt somebody else. And if I take care of that somebody else or if I, you know, go with that external condition, I actually harm myself. How do I hold that paradox? And really holding that tension by, by holding it with that kindness practice is, you know, in life, in the life that, that has a certainty of death, it also has the certainty of harm. That sometimes harm is caused in our life, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And so how do we move through the world causing the least harm possible? So if I set my boundary, is that causing the least harm? If I cross my own boundary, is that the least harm? What is the least harm that will be caused? It's not a formula. It's a practice in the moment. And we can get caught in the external, just like and we can get caught in the internal. Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who we have sometimes quoted here, he's a Thai um, teacher. Also, he was quite socially um, engaged um, in the last century in, in Southeast Asia. He was once asked to describe the world and he only used three words, lost in thought. <laughs> lost in thought of how the world should be or needs to be or has to be. We can look at all of the turmoil and the, and the difficulty and the suffering of the world and we can get lost, we can get overwhelmed. How do we begin to create a life of peace without needing the external conditions to be peaceful? Because force-fitting peace into our lives is not peaceful. And so this is why it's so important what you're doing here is creating that stillness so that you can integrate it into the activities of your life. Because another paradox is that we were made for solitude and we were made for solidarity. We were made for the silence and we are also made to support each other. Both the brilliance and the burden of activism is precisely the activism itself. The incessant engagement is not beneficial because we can burn out. The passive awareness without doing anything isn't helpful either. And this is where the middle path really supports us. And that all of the social change agents that inspire me ha come from this 
a deep spiritual foundation. That's the wellspring of the energy. Mindfulness, mindfulness allows us to create justice using just means. Because no matter how well-intentioned justice work done unjustly isn't just. Only insight can unravel that complexity. So Thomas Merton wrote this in 1966. There is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs, activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our inner capacity for peace It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes the work fruitful. Doing is not a bad thing. Doing all the time is not a good thing. (laughs) Doing nothing is not a bad thing. Doing nothing all the time is not a good thing. (laughs) This tension between being and doing, what is that path? The Buddha said in the Irivuttaka, to know deeply, to know deeply, know something, meaning it's, its true nature, then with a heart made clean of defilements, greed, hatred, and delusion, move to act in the world. So a a, a short story about doing nothing and doing everything comes from September 26, 1983, which I lived through and I didn't even know I lived through it. (laughs) Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov was a duty officer in a secret bunker outside of Moscow that monitored the Soviet Union's early warning satellite system when the alarm bells went off shortly after midnight. One of the satellites signaled that Moscow signaled Moscow that the United States had launched five ballistic missiles at Russia. Given the heightened tensions between the two countries, the alarm coincided with the beginning of the provocative NATO military exercises and barely three weeks after the South Korean airliner had been shot down after wandering into Soviet airspace. But Petrov felt I had a funny feeling in my gut. He did nothing. For one thing, the report indicated that only five missiles had been fired. Had the United States been launching an actual nuclear attack, he reasoned, ICBMs would be raining down on them. I didn't want to make a mistake. I made a decision, and that was it. 
and he averted a potential nuclear holocaust in doing so. Barry Lopez, who is an environmental writer and activist. No culture has yet solved the dilemma each has faced with the growth of a conscious mind. How to live a moral and compassionate existence when one is fully aware of the blood, the horror inherent in all life and when one finds darkness not only in one's own culture, but within one's own self. If there is a stage at which an individual life becomes truly adult, it must be when one grasps the irony of this unfolding and accepts responsibility for a life lived in the midst of such paradox. One must live in the middle of contradiction because if all contradiction were eliminated at once, life would collapse. There are simply no answers to some of the great pressing questions. You continue to live them out, making your life a worthy expression of leaning into the light. what we do to transform the world is so needed. Justice work is such a worthy human endeavor. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s very famous quote that the, moral, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And he also said, as you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the instruments of love. So the last point that I'd like to make is the hardest for me to make. And that is the seeming paradox between justice and freedom because there's a distinction. Love is the expression of freedom, freedom of our hearts and minds. True freedom doesn't mean to be in a place where there is no problem or no struggle or no suffering. It means to be in the midst of those things and still be free in our hearts. Freedom is not dependent on external conditions not even that of justice. In a world that so, in a world that, that is, is so needed for justice to happen, we can feel the urgency in that, in our human condition, the, the, the needs of our woundedness and wounded humanity. True freedom is not waiting for those conditions to end in order to be free. We can do the hard work that needs to be done in this world without our hearts 
being hard. And in that is both the ease and the tension. Because in spite of adverse conditions, there are moments of freedom. Che Guevara writes, let me say at the risk of sounding ridiculous that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. There is no social action that is truly effective without an open heart. Mindfulness and compassion allows us to transform and heal the suffering of the world in a way that doesn't cause more suffering. Living into that is an uncertain path. It's an unknown. It's, it's, a, it's how, a how do I do it? How do we do it? Insight and mindfulness begins to dissolve the paradox by holding it all. we can hold a vision of how we see the world to be and make our actions consistent with that vision. And the paradox begins to dissolve. Each time we practice kindness and awareness, we are transforming our world and the world. We begin to hold the unholdable. We begin to connect the broken heart and the raging mind. We look for the wisdom embedded in that rage with compassion. We link the direct experience of suffering and weave it into compassionate action. And we develop faith in the certainty that all life is uncertain, including about how to do it. This is a personal practice for each of us, but it is our collective journey together. Because of course there is pain that is too overwhelming for any individual heart and mind to hold. And that is why raising our collective consciousness is critical. If Jung talked about a collective unconscious, there is a collective consciousness that can be raised. And the larger the numbers of the collective, the greater the capacity to turn towards that larger suffering that no individual can, can hold by themselves. This is why our efforts here are so important. your efforts to create that stillness and peace is really no different than creating it in the world. And, it, and you bring it into your worlds. This is the breadth of our practice, to include all the contradictions and paradoxes, which are not exceptions to the rule of our life. They are our life. 
So let's take a moment together. by Gunilla Norris. It is a paradox that we encounter so much internal noise when we first try to sit in silence. It is a paradox that experiencing pain releases pain. It is a paradox that keeping still can lead us so fully into life and being. Our minds do not like paradoxes. We want things to be clear so we can maintain our illusions of safety. Certainty breeds tremendous smugness. We each possess a deeper level of being, however, which loves paradox. It knows that summer is already growing like a seed in the depth of winter. It knows that the moment we are born, we begin to die. It knows that all of life shimmers in shades of becoming, that light and shadow are always together the visible mingled with the invisible. When we sit in stillness, we are profoundly active. Keeping silent, we hear the roar of existence through our willingness to be the one we are. We become one with everything. So a gentle reminder to really hold tenderly this, this experience of noble silence.
it's um, it's so precious and tender right now. And just to savor, you know, the icing on the cake, the um, uh, the last moments, and if um, really to hold that until the morning session tomorrow. Um, and if those of you who have never practiced in the hall at night, if you happen to be awake, you know, you've collected all of this energy, all of this goodness in this past week. And to come into the hall when there are very few people, just yourself maybe, it's really a, really a beautiful experience. And the hall's open all night. So, many blessings on your rest. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.